market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always on a Sunday, Dr. Neil Manhunty. G'day, Doc. How are you? Good day, Captain. I'm going to call it the special regular mailbag edition. Sure, but it's still special. It's very special, but it's, it's regular. Special. That's okay. I don't mind that. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to call it special regular. <laughs> you want to call it special Sunday? Special regular. I yeah. like it. I like it. Um, I'm thinking, reminds me back of the old, old days when there was super and regular unleaded the petrol it wasn't even I said leaded I should say leaded remember leaded petrol those were the days yeah, those were the days Look, we are, our old car used to run on regular and then we upgraded our car around super super I felt I felt much better I think I think it was just cost more I'm not sure it was actually any better for the car no it wasn't so you, it was higher but, octane but our podcast is free you, you can call it super super duper whatever yeah. you want it's, it's still free I mean, it's worth a whole lot more than people pay for it put it that way yeah yeah. So you know maybe we should just you know advertise our oh we can advertise our bank accounts <laughs> <laughs> you can do that. I'm not, I'm not sure someone would rob me, rob me of all my money. <laughs> no. uh, if you want, if you want to send, you know what? Don't, don't, don't send us money. Join our investment services instead. Do that. Help you. Help us. Help you. Help us. Help you. Help us. <laughs> that sounds very confusing. I'm confused. Yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> Let's just move on. Uh, <laughs> how are you, mate? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. You having a good week? Well, I, I, I'm. Yeah, but it's Sunday now, so I'm at this point I'm really, really good. Uh, you you know, almost recovered from the uh, week that uh, was. Yeah, exactly, and it's you know bright and sunny. I'm hoping, and you know, great. Can I tell you this weekend? It's supposed to be 18 degrees at my place, and that will be the highest temperature we've had in about six months. And I am super excited for it. Oh, so it's going to be 18. 18 is sunny. So it's going to be like probably 25 for me. I oh, know. Half your luck. Oh, 25 is too hot. I like 25. 18. No, I'll take 20. Really? Yeah. 25, 27 of me. I've sweet spot. 27, I reckon. I'd okay. take. Mine is 20, 22. <laughs> My wife would agree with you, but. <laughs> Your wife's a smart lady. I would, I've always said that, mate. I've always said that. All right, let's, let's get on with it. Hey, question from oh, Instagram. You like that, don't you? I love Instagram. Question from Wood Duck on Instagram. <laughs> Hi again. What are your thoughts on buying stocks that a lot of experts say are overvalued? For example, Kogan is one I've been watching since April and have held off for some reason. Various things I've read say it's only worth around 12 bucks. I've had a few stocks in the same scenario where I haven't bought as they are essentially overvalued, but only continue to head north. In your experience, do stocks such as these generally level out and come back down to fair value? Or are some of these articles that overvalue them just missing the trick? I know it's a Motley Fool recommendation, but would you say I've missed the boat on it? Cheers, Wood Duck. Now, I own shares in Kogan for full disclosure. Um, so I'll put that out up front, but then Doc, I'll ask you, mate. What's let, let's, We'll talk about Kogan later. Let's start with just the, the beginning First sentence, what are your thoughts on buying stocks that a lot of experts say are overvalued? You know, um, I have a checklist for my buying, um, even for recommending. Stock is overvalued, great, fantastic. If everybody thinks it's overvalued, that that is almost awesome, an awesome sign. (laughs) If people are shorting it, that's definitely worth looking at. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I look at those as, as contra- Indicators. If people think it is overvalued, mm. therefore it must not be a consensus stock. I, I mean, I mean, um, what I really dislike is a mm. consensus buy, and this is this is different from the share price. What I mean, you know, the share price could be as high as it can, but if a large number of people think this is a stock to buy, mm. in my mind, that's not a good thing. Okay. Whereas, if a large number of people think this is a stock to hold or sell, and yet the share price is high. That actually can be a good thing. So that, anyways, that's you know, it can be everything. everything Very contrarian it, of you, mate. 
Uh, yeah, but yeah. It, it, so today you're a contrarian. On Friday you're a value guy. I don't. By, by Monday you might have a Warren Buffett T-shirt on. I'm I'm, I'm always a contrarian <laughs> um, investor. Right. Um, you know people. You know people would think that I'm I'm. You know like. But in a different I way, right? you're happy to pay high prices for stuff. Yeah. You just don't want to be. You don't want the crowd to have already been there first. Yeah, I'm happy to pay uh, what appears to be a high price. Yeah, is is the way. Right, and, right, right. And, and, and I'll, I'll, can I answer? I'll answer without actually talking specifically about uh, about Kogan, yep. right? So number one thing I'll say is that when you see a fair value of whatever ten dollars or twelve dollars or fifteen dollars or whatever it is. Yep. Number one is that if you don't know what the input to those models were to generate <laughs> those numbers or outputs, yeah. you get whatever you input that your model delivers an output, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no guarantee that the actual fair value is 10, 12, 15. For all I know, it could be 30, it could be right, five, right, right. right? That's number one. Number two is uh, with many growth stocks, the way I like to think about them is I like to think about the total opportunity, right? If the right. If the total opportunity, and we've talked about this a number of times, with respect, for example, Kogan, um, you could say, well, look at the total sales of uh, Woolworths, mm-hmm. compare that with the total sales of uh, Kogan, and it gives you a rough idea, a very rough idea of sort of the market opportunity, um, right, okay. you know, in front of Kogan, right? Yep. So that's another way to think about it. Third, you call that the total addressable market in the past. Is that yeah, the same thing? so total addressable market. Total addressable market would include, you know, how much is the, you know, how much of the market does, co- you know, Woolworths own? How much does, you know, everybody else, right? I mean, all the retail in the in say Australia, for example, right, right, right. right. That that goes into hundreds of billions of dollars, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. um, so that's number one. Number two would be that typically when a share price has gone up a lot, mm-hmm. yes, it can after going up a lot stagnate, not do anything mm-hmm. for a while, even go down, right? Yep. Yep. It could also go up, <laughs> right? So what the share price is actually going to do is really hard to know. But yeah. this is the uh, controlling the human emotion is very important. And in my mind, when I want to really buy a company mm-hmm. and I feel that the shares are frothy, but I still want to buy it, or the shares have gone up a lot, I still want to buy it, I really start a small position. That's what I do. I would start a small position and I'll wait. Yeah. And and the reason this works is if a company is is good and if it's going to say multi-bag, right? Mm. If it has the potential of multi-bag 10 times, mm-hmm. you will have many opportunities to buy this thing. <laughs> yeah, right. right? If it's going to tank, yeah. then you'd be happy that you put in a little bit. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? And in fact, if it's still, t- if you never even add and it goes 10 up, 10x, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll still be happy with a little bit, right? Your little bit will go a long way. So in a way, little, you know, dipping your toes is something that I I like doing for, you know, companies that have run up a lot. Right. Um, it's it's more of an emotional management thing, right? And it helps you sort of you know get in line and follow companies and see what's going on, learn about the business. And what typically happens is if you learn about the business over time, your knowledge improves. Your you know your fundamentals right, of right, understanding right. of the business improves, and you have better ability to actually judge what you should pay. That's what I do. Um, I think Kogan is a fantastic company. I don't have a particular view on the share price. I mean, mm-hmm. for what, like, I'll make a genetic comment. That is, I think e-commerce has run hot. Mm-hmm. Um, of late mm-hmm. is is e- e-commerce in many ways might appear to be the consensus stock um, but again I think Kogan in my view is still in, in early days in terms of you know the total 
addressable market. So there's going to be ups and downs. You just should be prepared for volatility. Yeah, nice. I like that. Um, I've got a couple of additional thoughts, mate. I can't disagree with anything you just said. Um, I'll add a couple though. I think firstly, I would say that experts are, well, firstly, are they really experts? And I don't mean that in a critical way at all. What I mean is in anyone, including us, if you're listening to us, you should be understanding what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and whether we're any good at it. So the first thing is, if those experts saying it's overvalued, do they have a track record that is actually worth listening to? Not just because they're quoted in the media, not just because they work for a, a big, important, well-known brokering house or analyst house. Um, really ask the question, you know, is, is there a good reason? Not about Kogan in general, by the way, any company, Telstra or Woolies or anyone. Um, you know, why, why are they, you know, the forecast as credible as they might seem to be? And I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying literally ask that question. If there's someone with a good track record, then pay more attention. If there's someone with a bad track record, then maybe you can afford to just let it kind of, you know, let that one slide a little bit. That's the first thing. Second thing to Doc's point is, I'm not a high growth investor the same way Doc is. But what we do agree with, I think, and Doc again, tell me if you think I'm wrong, um, is that if you think about the way analysts tend to work and the models that Doc mentioned at the very beginning, it's very, very hard to do two things. One is it's very, very hard to put large growth numbers in a spreadsheet year after year. Because it feels somehow irresponsible. If I'm an analyst and I work for, you know, insert bank here, uh, and I say, look, I think um, we mentioned A2 on Friday. There's almost no analyst who would have credibly been able to put 30% growth for five straight years into a spreadsheet on A2 milk because that's what I think is going to happen. Because there's just that social pressure. There's that kind of, it almost feels irresponsible, right? If I, if I put five years of comment at 30%, you look at it and go, Oh, that, I mean, that's, that looks pretty high. I'll, I'll probably bring that down a little bit. I'll probably take a bit off that off that share price just because just I don't want to overdo it. That that kind of natural human instinct to, to, we don't think well exponentially and we don't think well in compound terms. And those things really work against us as, as, as model makers. So that's, the, that's part of it. The second part of the model thing is very, very rare for people to put that sort of growth or any sort of growth in for more than, say, five years. Now, if you look at, I use Amazon. I own Amazon shares. I think Doc, you do as well. Um, if I put, you know, if you literally, even in hindsight, listed the growth rates of Amazon by year for the last 20 years and put them literally in a spreadsheet going back that far um, and then presented it now, you'd be like, oh, that can't be right. It can't, can't grow by that much over that period of time. The first few years, of course, they go, yeah, okay, it's Amazon, right? Of course, it'll grow fast. Yeah, there'll be some 40, 50% years in there, but that'll be the first five or six years. And then after that, I guess it'll slow to 30%, then maybe to 20 and then, oh, look, 10 years in, they're probably going to be at 5%. Look, by 12 years, they're probably going to be just, you know, growing like the rest of the economy, right? That's what's going to happen. And so that's how people missed Amazon, how people missed Netflix, how people missed, I don't know, Doc, any other examples come to mind? Those, those businesses that are just long-term compounds at very large growth rates that people instinctively say, well, that can't possibly happen or that would be irresponsible or, you know, I, I better not put that in just in case. Um, and again, a lot of time that's the shouldn't do, right? I'm not saying it's true for every company. It may not be true for Kogan. Kogan might be overvalued right now for all I know. Um, I own shares, as I said, but, you know, you know, maybe it is overvalued. I don't think it is, but it could be. Um, but again, that, that kind of idea of how far out are you forecasting the growth to continue for, um, that's something that I've certainly learned to do more of. Uh, I've owned Amazon for a while, I owned Kogan, I've owned others that I think are long-term you know, growth stories. Uh, but you do need as an investor to kind of, A, try and be right as you can, but B, hold your nose when conventional wisdom says, ah, that's a bit much, ah, oh, that's a bit long. Uh, because the big growth stories, and frankly, the value all accrues at the end, right? Like, you know, the last, I, I don't know what the, Amazon's probably, has it doubled in the last year, maybe, Doc, something like that? Some, if, if it, let's say it's doubled over two years, just for the sake of it, right? That means if you'd invested, whatever you'd invested, if you'd have been up 200%, you're now up 400%. If you were up 1,000%, you're now up 2,000%. The, the value accrues at the very, very end of that growth, or, or at least the last years, it may, it may keep going, I'm not saying it is at the end, but whatever time frame you're looking at, the, the very nature of compounding says the largest dollar gains happen 
later rather than earlier. And so if you get off that bus too early, you do miss that opportunity. So that, that's kind of my general thought. Um, to, to, to Kogan in particular, Dr. Kogan mentioned that, yes, I think some of the articles are missing a trick a little bit. Um, if you think about the long-term growth possibilities for Kogan, now again, I might be wrong. And I'm not saying that it's only worth 12 or not worth 12 or it's only worth whatever. I just think in this sort of business with really meaningful long-term growth plus the COVID kind of multiplier on top of that, um, yes, sales will come down next year, by the way. You should expect sales to fall this time next year because they've been so good now. But long-term, I'm more people going to shop at Kogan in three and five and seven years than they are today. I think almost certainly. And if that's true, and that number's even reasonably you know, high as a growth compound rate, uh, there's plenty more upside for Kogan in my view. Also, don't forget, a small company that's only only slightly profitable Sales grew for Kogan. I'm making these numbers up, Doc. It was something like 15 to 17%, but profit was up like 50% or something. It was, it was the leverage you can use on those things. Not only is sales growth going to be good, but profit growth should outstrip sales growth for a while to come. Yeah, I don't disagree with anything. You know, when you were talking about Amazon, Amazon is up 6x in the last five years. Wow, there you go. There you go. Um, and, and you mentioned on Friday, two large number companies, right? So I'll, I'll throw one your way. Yeah, the likes of Apple, right? How long can Apple keep growing? Well, a very long time from the look of it at 450 odd bucks a share as we, as we, as we record this podcast. You know, 500 um, plus. Is that right? It's 500 plus. App, Apple is what? A nearly a 5x in five years right. so, so yeah that, that's the sort of yeah. that's sort of, and those will be companies already and again the last games it's not only 5x one dollar turned to five sure but if you held that for 10 years before then your, your one dollar's already turned into you know 50 and then at 5x's from there you don't want to get off the, off the off the train too early now again you can hold stuff that goes badly so i'm not saying everything should be held regardless or you should always be stupidly optimistic just if you if you have a good business and they're doing the right things often worth hanging on rather than rather than trying to quibble over a couple of cents yeah like i, I mean i think the point would be that um stuff like amazon and apple i think those that you know that have compounded for that long that rate those tend to be rare yeah true. right but you know we were talking about a2 the other day yeah. right i mean that's yeah. another example of a business that has been compounding at a phenomenal rate yep. you know and, and you know in the couple hundred million dollars range to like now a billion dollar range right um again that's you know if you ask Huge. somebody to model that into 2014 <laughs> that's right they would have by now put like a five percent yeah uh, revenue growth yeah. rate on it, right? Sure, sure, it's mature by now. Surely it can't keep growing yeah. at 30%. Yeah. yeah. So that's the, those are the things. And and I think, you know, you just being patient sometimes um, and be willing to, you know, uh, even see your know, share price stagnate for sometimes is okay yeah. because that way you at least don't miss out on the ones that keep delivering. Yeah. Uh, can I, can I, I'll just I'll throw another one on top of that, mate, just for the sake of it. I'm not great at, by the way, putting five years, 10 years of 30% growth in spreadsheets. I mean, I, I have the same mental challenges, emotional challenges as everybody else. It feels reckless. It feels ridiculous. And and I've got to say, that, you know, I, my, my approach, generally speaking, has just to become... Uh, Warren Buffett talks about running running Berkshire with benign neglect, right? Just kind of letting 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 things do them run themselves. To some degree, with me, I don't, I don't try and model uh, an A two or a Kogan or whatever out X years and say, therefore, it's worth this much. If I have that sort of expectation that growth could be like that, sometimes it's better not try and model it anyway. Because when you try and be specific like that, you do talk yourself out of this stuff. So I have I have zero. He's a, he's a uh, for those who for those who want me to have a model for everything. Here's some disappointment. I have I don't have never done a model for Kogan. I've never in my life done a financial model for Kogan. I don't, I don't know. And I don't have a sense of exactly what percentage I think is going to grow per year for the next five years. I don't know. I'm happy just to say it seems to be more relevant to more people at increasing rates. I think it's likely to continue. And if I'm directionally right for long enough, then 12 or 22 is not kind of super relevant, right? Now, if I'm wrong, 
12 and 22 is meaningful and, and maybe I should be more thoughtful. You don't want to say I'll pay any price for Telstra or any price for Woolies or any price for, for uh, you know, uh, Sydney Airport because there are natural limits. But when there are no significant natural limits or at least companies aren't close to those limits, modelling, even the, even the process, the act of modelling can actually talk you out of some stuff that you probably shouldn't be talked out of. Yeah, I agree with that. I was going to, I was going to say something. Um, you know, we talked about 6X for Amazon. Yep. Um, a little company, A2 Milk, is actually a 28 bagger. Wow. In 28. I did not pick that. In how long? In five years. 28 bagger. 28 bagger. Phenomenal. 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 I wish I... Crystal ball again broken. Got to fix that. <laughs> surely, surely is the the Mollypool should be responsible for giving his work in crystal ball, shouldn't I? I mean, that, that, <laughs> I think so. They're they're our employer. They have a duty <laughs> of care. I want to work in crystal ball. Goddamn it! All right, uh, great question. Well, Doug, thank you for that. And hopefully, you enjoyed the the response as well. Let's move on to a question from Eric Doc. He says, "Hello, Scott. I love the podcast with Doc. Thanks, Eric. Excellent insights from two of the best minds in investing. Thank you, mate." Um, Probably the only two you've heard of, obviously, but we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. And of course, Eric knows exactly the best way to get your question answered on the podcast is to say nice things. He says, I have a question for the mailbag. I all, This is one of my favorite questions I've ever been asked, Doc. Full, full, full warning. I found the best way to learn is to teach others. You always find things you do not know. My question is, what are the most difficult questions... Three thoughts. What are the three most difficult questions you and Doc learned? So this question is written differently. Let me let me re- uh, paraphrase the question. Um, what three things have you learned from the most difficult questions when you've been answering them on the mailbag? So there you go, Doc. What what three things have we learned from answering mailbag questions? If we if if, if the best way to learn is to teach, what have the mailbag taught us? Oh, this is a hard one. Is that um, a good question? though? I love is, I love the really concept. Great I love question. the idea. Um, I'm not sure if I can put, you know, the number one thing I think is um, the, uh, I think it's an evolution process. What I've noticed is our sort of mailbag as we have answered questions has grown. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess in my mind, that means that, you know, if there's relevance Mm -hmm. being provided, then over time, um, more people seek question more people seek answers more people are willing to yeah, open up and ask so that's probably the the most um relevant thing that i have discovered from the podcast in terms of the, the questions comes in all shapes and uh, sizes and difficulties and and so on there have been times when there have questions we have had to do a lot of mm. digging to get the answers but you know at a high level i think that's was my sort of my key takeaway nice i've learned to there's not a single answer eric but i've learned to be more nuanced in my thinking um, as an investor, I've continued to evolve. I, I, I'm less certain about more things um, the longer I invest. So when I started investing, I've told this story before, I had a spreadsheet which had columns and I used to manually type in um, numbers from P&Ls and balance sheets and I had every every possible calculation and metric and growth stat you could find. I had revenue growth and earnings growth. I had gross profit margins. I had cash conversion cycles. I had interest cover. I had all this data, right? The problem is it was just data. It wasn't really information because there was so much of it. It wasn't really helping me. Um, and and some, yeah, it, it's a natural start, a natural way to start doing that sort of stuff. What I've, what I've learned over time, and particularly with the mailbag, is just understanding the, the, where people are at specifically in terms of their own investing uh, positions and, and what it's really meant for their lives, right? So the same, the, the question asked by, by two different people can have two very different answers depending on their own perspectives and, and their own approaches. So that, that's been super useful. For me personally, the other thing I, I think I'd add is not so much a learning but a, but a constant reminder, um, getting the opportunity to, to keep people's heads in the game to relax, to chill out, to not freak out, 
Um, sometimes it's you know it's it's it, it's easier when your job is to make sure you remind people of that stuff. You're kind of reminding yourself at the same time. And so while it's not exactly learning by teaching, it's almost kind of you know um, uh, chilling out by telling people other people to chill out. It really is that sense of. A reminder: If I wasn't, if I wasn't doing this and I wasn't kind of sharing it, would I be more introspective and insular? Would I be more worried? Would I be more thoughtful of my own portfolio? More concerned? Very possibly. So I think for me, that's a that's a huge one, a huge, um, a huge part of it. And lastly, I'll, I'll give a wrap to my, my mate and co-host here, Doc. Um, honestly, while I, while it's not me teaching, the great the great thing about you know we we chat like we have a, a water cooler channel in Slack um, at work, and so daily we kind of we're all, we're chatting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Getting to spend a couple of hours a week with Doc, just literally talking through some of these big issues, super useful, super interesting, super valuable. Um, I, I'm a better investor for having spent the time. So while it's not me necessarily uh, teaching, learning by teaching, I certainly get to learn by spending some time with Doc, and that's a that's a huge benefit for me in my investing. Anything else coming to mind for you, mate? No, I mean you know again by just by by sheer discussion, as you said, right? We we learn things, and that that is always great. Uh, Eric finishes off with hashtag love the tangent, hashtag five star review. Thank you, Eric. Very kind, mate. Appreciate the the question and the feedback. Now, this one, mm-hmm. Jonathan Jonathan should know better. Is all I'm saying. Uh, Jonathan should know that we appreciate positive feedback. Jonathan should also know we don't really appreciate being criticised. And God knows, I don't appreciate being told you're right. So, Jonathan, three strikes. <laughs> I'm not going to say you're out. I'm going to ask you a question because I'm an ice bloke. All I'm saying is, next time, just have a think. Jonathan Seifels, so much to say, but I'll only mention the most important bits. First, I've been listening to your podcast since you started it and haven't missed an episode. Wow, thank you, mate. Uh, thank you very much. He says, all excellent, except the ads and the overcool man who speaks very loudly between sections <laughs> and at the end. Um, I, we, don't, we don't control the overcool man. Uh, we do, we kind of control the ads, I suppose, but uh, thanks for putting up with both, mate. We, we very much appreciate it. I'll ask the overcool man to tone it down a bit. He says, second, Scott, You'll be thrilled, he says, uh, not sure, to know that I bought Tesla shares when Anirban told you to and they are a three-bagger so far. Thank you, Anirban. Is there anything else he should buy? Um, Jonathan, seriously, dude, come on. I mean, there's, 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 there's rubbing my face in it and there's rubbing my face in it publicly in a podcast, so thank you very much. But because I'm an end of the people, Jonathan, because I, I have a deep dedication to our listeners, uh, let me ask Doc the question. Doc, what else should I be buying that I'm not buying? Oh, you should still be buying Tesla. Tesla, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, um, I'm going to stop telling people to buy Tesla when I can convince <laughs> someone from, uh, I think I was able to convince Ryan to buy a couple of shares. Okay. He, just, he bought a couple of shares. Not, you know. One of our colleagues? Yeah, one of our colleagues. Um, but yeah, when I can convince more of my <laughs> colleagues to buy Tesla shares, I think that's the point at which I'm going to say Tesla is overvalued. Uh, but 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 thus far, I am. Uh, I'm half uh, the team. I'm I'm outraged and um, offended. I'm utterly, um, <laughs> you know, devastated. And nobody's buying Tesla shares. Um, I think I think Jonathan actually wants some stock tips, mate. So what what else would you would you have on your list? Well, like I mean, okay. Here's so here's a company that was up uh, overnight by. 27%. Now you'd say, you know, you'd be crazy person to say that, you know, you should buy the stock. So a company called Salesforce, a small little company yes. uh, that sells uh, sells uh, CRM software. Customer relationship um, management. Customer relationship, you know, if, you, if you're interested in SaaS and you want to buy mm-hmm. one of the greatest SaaS companies mm. uh, run by... Uh, kind of grandfather of SaaS companies, yeah, right? grandfather kind of, of SaaS companies. Yeah, yeah. The, one of the first ones. Actually, the first one to come up um, with an app store. Oh wow! Yeah, did that precede Apple? 
So that's a, do you want me to tell you a story? Yeah, here? tell me a story. Okay, I'll tell you a story. So, um, so Steve Jobs and uh, Mark Benioff had a had a I think a good relationship. Okay. And Mark Benioff is the CEO of Salesforce. CEO and co-founder of of uh, Salesforce. Right. And when Apple was about to unveil the App Store, yeah. Um, he um, asked Benioff to have a look. Right. Right. And Benioff asked him, "What are you going to call it?" He said, "I'm <laughs> going to call it the App Store." Uh, and then Benioff then told Jobs, you know, well, you know, there's a little problem with that. Salesforce owns the trademark for the <laughs> App Store. And the, That's a cool the, story. And the story behind that is when Benioff was starting <laughs> Salesforce, one of the things that Jobs told Benioff was, what you really want to do is create an App Store for applications so that you, other applications can yeah, connect yeah. to your enterprise software. There you go. And that's what Benioff did. Benioff so Jobs gave Benioff the idea who then trademarked and told Jobs he couldn't use it. Yeah. But no, but they already <laughs> had the app store at that point. Right. But Benioff okay, is okay. a great guy, fantastic. Benioff actually does so much for equality education. He's a fantastic actually, oh, nice. leader. Uh, nice. I love what Benioff does. Uh, his conscious capitalism is awesome. Benioff basically said, okay, Steve, you can have the App Store, and they basically Salesforce gave the App Store trademark for free. Uh, I'd be a little grumpy if I was a Salesforce shareholder. Just quietly, <laughs> Apple doesn't well, need Apple doesn't need charity. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? There's I call it the tree of the Silicon Valley, right? So yeah. you know there are people. So here's another tip, hot tip: there are yeah. people who Jobs was associated with, for example, Benioff, who went on to create great companies. Mm. Some of the greatest SaaS companies that have been created today. Yeah. The new generation of SaaS companies yeah. are all from you know the number eighteen, number seventeen, number eighteen, number twenty Salesforce employees. There you go. In fact, Salesforce would invest in ah. companies that have been created by for, former. That's fascinating. Work. Yeah. Do you put it down to so is it is it Salesforce's education? Is it the fact that those people were given an early insight into the future and then could take that learning? Were they just high quality people? Is it the Salesforce mafia after the fact kind of helping each other? What what, what do you, if you have a view, what do you put that down to? Well, I think I put it down to, you know, it's the culture of create, getting the best talent. Right. And the best talent wants to create new things. Sometimes yeah, okay. they can create the new thing within an organization. Sometimes they need to get out of an organization. And I think the organization respects the fact that you want to go and create something. Right. Right. Um, you know, so things like Okta, for example, are, you know, and Twilio, I believe, are Salesforce uh, spin outs. Right? right. So, right. Um, or, you know, spin outs are yeah, from people, people, who, yeah. people who have. Yeah. So, I mean, um, huh, fascinating. Salesforce is a great buy. Oh, that's two. Tesla, Salesforce, we've got a third for uh, for Jonathan who doesn't deserve it because of what he said to me, but because uh, I'm a nice bloke. You know, I'll give you an, an, an ASX one. I really okay. was impressed with, um, you know, how A2 Milk has right. been delivering, right? And we talked about, you know, again, you can look at various different companies and, you you know, you want a big company that's growing at a fast rate. Mm -hmm. with, it doesn't have a huge multiple compared to many other companies, right? And then, you know, you could look at um, A2 Milk. A2 mm -hmm. Milk is, again... I think it's a, it's a fantastic company, you know, solid company with solid growth rates, a lot lot of opportunity ahead of itself. Right. There you go, Jonathan. Three different ideas. There's, uh, there's three ideas. Third, he says, oh, he's still having a go at us. When you two speak of young people, he says, not me in brackets, investing over long time horizons, you are apt to use as a rule of thumb doubling every seven years or so. Now, just a quick parenthesis there, that goes back to the rule of 72, uh, which says that if you can get 10% a year, 72 divided by 10 is seven years. Um, so if you get 10% a year, you should double your money about every seven years or so, just the way compounding works, which is true, if you get 10%. Mm -hmm. 
And we think that's the historical rate of the, the return from stock markets around the world, including the US and ASX. So it's a nice starting point. He says, it's true, but also disingenuous. This is not a word I would use, but my partner is an English teacher and she recommended it. <laughs> as it implies, the dollars at the start of the investment are the, are the same value as the dollars at the end. So to say investing 10 grand in a stock in 1999 is now worth $40,000, three doublings, omits to mention that in 2020, a dollar is worth 64% of what it was in 1999. So in a sense, that 10 grand has only increased to $25,600 if comparing apples with apples. I do it myself when I try to convince the old young person that I think might be keen to invest, but it is naughty. Keep up the good work, Jonathan. Hashtag keep Doc off Insta. Hashtag Scott by Tesla. Hashtag Scott by a Tesla. Jonathan, this may be the last time your questions are ever asked or answered on the podcast. I support the last hashtag. To all I'm saying. The last hashtag is a good one. Scott, <laughs> no, buy a Tesla. <laughs> you, I did reply to Jonathan, not about the Tesla thing. I'll let that go to the keeper. You, you would just enjoy the driving. <laughs> oh, right? it's a beautiful car. Matter every now and again, I get to ride in yours. It's fantastic. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Tesla. Um, not going to quite take me to a place I like going, but, but it's, a, it's a wonderful car. It's always a, always a, a very enjoyable drive. Um, so I did reply to Jonathan, actually. I, I said, look, he's absolutely right. He's dead right. We don't ever include the impact of inflation, um, and we probably should. The, the I guess that the thing is, it, it, it's particularly in audio format, but even a written format. The key thing for us is the concept, right? And if 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 forty grand is worth twenty five and a half grand in, in seven years time, but you still got twenty five grand, we started with ten. I'm okay with that. <laughs> And it's not. I'm not being disingenuous by trying to lie because, you know, we, we can talk about the you know, the average cost of a car has gone nowhere in in 40 years. I mean, you know, a brand new Camry today costs about what it cost in 1998. That's not 40 years ago, but work with me. Um, loaf of bread is cheaper. You know, computers are, are, are two third, one third of the price, maybe a quarter of the price they were. TVs. Um, you and I, Doc, every now exchange uh, exchange messages about the price of Kogan TVs. It just seemed to have no other way to go but down. Um, the TVs get bigger and the price gets smaller. Um, He's absolutely right. You know, including inflation uh, would absolutely impact it, and so we never want to be disingenuous about that, or at least not deliberately. Um, it would be it would actually be more. I said to him on 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 text. It would be more important if we we're trying to spook our own our own services, right? If we said our services have done X, Y, and Z, that would absolutely be true. In this case, we're just trying to say to people, hey, invest because you can make a lot of money. If 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 a million dollars is, is worth seven hundred thousand dollars in in forty years time, I'm okay with that. You know, <laughs> it's, it's it's one of those things where is it is it more true? I guess like is it more factual? Yes, I guess. Um, and we don't we're not we're not fast and loose with the truth at all. We don't we don't admit it for the for the hell of it. We're just trying to, as you say yourself, mate. You know, you do it yourself when you try and convince the odd young person it might be worth investing. Um, the other thing, by the way, is it's hard to know what inflation is actually going to be. I mean, if you if you'd have said in 1999, by the way, inflation for the last five years of the of the 2010s would be less than two percent. Uh, I mean, people would have called you crazy at the time. Now, I don't know what inflation is in the next 20 years. It might be five percent. It might be one percent. It might be negative. It's impossible to know. So what what you're right to you're right to highlight it, mate. I've got no defence against it other than in the, for the context that we use it for, which is as you say at the very end trying to be very clear and simple about the compound value of investing and the, and the reason it's worth doing. I, you know, you, you're dead right. Um, by the same token, I think it's probably one of those questions of are we adding value or subtracting it? Hopefully, we're adding enough value by using the example and getting people to invest as, as you do yourself. Any thoughts on that? No, sir. I think you covered it. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Got a question from Frogger. Frogger on, I think it was Instagram. Hey, Scott, I listened to Friday's podcast on the way into work this morning, and I have a question for you on the doc regarding the conversation you had about Qantas. Now, you'll like this one, mate. <laughs> 
Both of you said there is a possibility that Qantas could need to raise capital in the not-too-distant future, which would likely require issuing more shares. I'm sure you both remember that recently Qantas raised capital and let some staff go as a result of the Rona. I like that. Uh, in the press conference, I believe that Alan Joyce said doing this would guarantee the company until 2023. Did you make the comments about a possible capital raising just because the company reporting was so bad? Or was Alan Joyce telling Porky's when he said the company would be right until 2023? And he finishes with this. Asking for a friend who may have taken the money he planned to invest in a second-hand motorbike and instead bought Qantas shares in March, hoping he could sell them in 18 months and buy a brand new motorbike instead. Cheers and love the pod. And that is from Frogger. Uh, I'll let you have the first one. This one is, is Frogger. Is Frogger? Is Frogger, Frogger's friend? We, we should be clear. This is not Frogger. It's his friend, who uh, who may well have put some money, some motorbike money, into Qantas shares instead, hoping to turn it into a new motorbike. Uh, have we unduly worried him, or, or should he be uh, should he be a little more cautious with his motorbike money? Uh, so, mate, Frogger. Uh, <laughs> I love that name. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so. I, I let me answer the question about um, Alan. I'm not, I don't think he's. I wouldn't characterize him as saying lies. I, I really like what um, they've done with Qantas. I love the brand, and I think he's done a fantastic job at the airline. Now, if the planes are not flying, mm. because and this is not just internationally, even domestically, because the borders are closed, because everybody wants to be, uh, you know, in their <laughs> little uh, uh, principality of whatever, um, <laughs> right? So you'd be critical of the state premiers, aren't you? Well, like I mean, I'm I am critical of the fact that you have. I'm well. I should be. I should watch my words carefully. So. <laughs> Don't get sued. Don't get sued, please. Um, but 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 well, I I'm. <laughs> I get the logic, but I also don't get the logic. You know, we're a federation, right? I mean, if we're a federation, we're one country, then, um, you know, too much of border wars uh, makes yeah. me think that we have individual countries <laughs> within a country, which is not, yeah. I think, the yeah. way. So that's my view of that. And it has impact on businesses, right? I'm not saying, you know, th there's surely got to be a way in which we can still travel i'm not saying open up into i know international travel all over is closed mm. but surely got to be a way in which we can get back to some sense we can't surely if somebody's saying that we're going to be locked down for 18 more months then i don't know in which land they live but i mean <laughs> clearly that is not a free land mm. right so that's um you know so there's got to be a way to figure it out i think the solution is not you know, there was a time, as I've said a number of times, there was a time for lockdown, there was a time for mm. masks, and everything can't be late and everything, you can't just have a late, dumb, dumb realization, yep. right? Yep. Uh, and I think that's my my issue with it. But anyways, that's, yeah, so, so given all these borders are locked, poor Qantas can't fly any planes. Right, <laughs> and they're saying at the moment, so they, um, they fired their international CEO during. Was that what? Well, they basically merged the international <laughs> with the domestic because there's going to be no domestic. There is no international. Planes. There's no international. <laughs> like I mean, and they sent all the planes to Arizona. They have sent all the planes yeah. to Arizona because it it has nice dry desert. <laughs> I've not figured out yet why we can't use the middle of Australia, but maybe the Arizona so desert is, is, no, is, is slightly a, better. There is a plane parking lot in Alice Springs. I, I thought exactly so. Why so why can't we send it? I maybe, couldn't agree more. No maybe, the, maybe because everybody's sending their planes to Arizona, yeah. so maybe they've got some service engineering team that yeah. periodically goes and services these planes. I have to wonder too. I, these, I mean, they're sending wide body seven eight sevens. They actually just the, the runway may not the facilities may not be able to to accommodate them in Australia. It could be that. Um, anyways, but the 
Yeah, and then, you know, so then if the current theory that's going around is, you know, we're going to have this vaccine and all of a sudden everything is going to be open, I have doubts about that too. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this vaccine theory. So, I mean, in the reality is that yep. Qantas may not be flying international in any substantial way mm-hmm. for a while mm-hmm. unless, you know, we um, we change um, our expectations, our behavior, and everything else is associated with that. Mm. Um, and we may not be flying much domestic flights as well. Yeah. And if that's the case, yeah. well, I mean, you know, uh, Alan can want whatever he wants, <laughs> but he's eventually going to run out of money, right? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. well, it's got a business which is not making any money. Mm-hmm. It has still got a lot of costs. Yeah. So they can, yeah. you know, so uh, I don't know. I don't think he's telling lies, but... Mm. Who can predict? I can't. Yeah. So. And that, and that's and that's the thing, right? Like I think, as you say, predictions aren't great for investors, but preparedness is. And so, being mindful of the potential outcomes and the, and the, I don't think it necessarily will raise capital. I think it's incredibly possible that it will, and that's different from likely, definite, whatever, certain. And I think, Frog, to your question, the so Sydney Airport came out. I want to say about six months ago, maybe not that long. Said, so, no, we don't have to raise any more capital. We won't be raising capital. We're fine. Yeah. And then last month they raised capital. Yeah, and I don't think I would necessarily tell lies at the time either. Certainly, I would not say that because I don't want to get sued. But let's assume they're also not intending to tell lies. Um, circumstances change, and whether that is that baked into Joyce's expectations are travel recovering at a certain pace, or their online lo- their sorry their loyalty business frequent fly doing a particular level of volume, or certain government handouts that don't come through, or simply that at some point the shares get up to a point where the, the business says, "Well, the shares are up a bit. Let's raise some capital because we can." Not needing to, or not doing. It. I will. I will, with with some degree of trepidation, mention Tesla because Musk had already said in the past, "I would have to raise capital," and then he did because it was an opportune time to do so. And was he lying? I don't think so. I don't think. He, I don't think he ever intended to, to to lie to the market and then raise capital. Say, "Ha ha, got you guys, you know, sucked in." It was just the circumstances allowed or required in any of those cases. Sydney Airport, Tesla, possibly Qantas. That that raising capital is just prudent. It's just sensible for whatever reason, uh, and. The, you know, at the point of making the statement, did it need to raise capital? Well, not in a, on a legal or even a even a common sense basis. Did it need to? Probably not. Will it anyway? Will it at some point? Might circumstances change that require it to? Absolutely. I think that's the biggest concern. As Doc's already said, if you don't know how long they take getting back to back to, you know, uh, flying, how long it takes, how how much money they lose in the meantime, how quickly the recovery happens once it does start to happen, all those things are up in the air. And I think. The current share price will tell you exactly that. The market doesn't know. has its good days and its bad days. Um, I will say for what it's worth too, if you're planning to buy a motorbike inside the next three to five years, gambling on shares is not the place to do it. You literally are gambling rather than investing. And up to you what you want to do with your speculation money. But uh, you should expect that sometimes it will go very, very badly. So the, the old motorbike that might become a new motorbike might also become an old push bike if you're not careful. And that, that's that's probably just as a general comment. Um, it's, it's, a lot of, it's, a lot of, it's a big gamble to make. I would, I would probably avoid it. Doc, anything else from you? I still like Qantas though. Like, I mean, not the, the shares, but the, <laughs> I like the airline. I do too. I yeah, do too. You know, um, I just recently asked them to give me my money back after letting them have my money for a long time. They said it's going to take- nice It's going to take 12 weeks to get my money back. 12 weeks? 12 weeks, yeah. 
What, are they literally going to walk it to you from Brisbane? I don't know. They're probably going to have to find it somewhere. <laughs> but, but I, I, you know, I was very apologetic to the person there. I said, you know, yeah. like the moment you guys are flying somewhere, you know, <laughs> I will give you some money happily. <laughs> but right now, I would rather keep that money with me because I could, I guess, use it for groceries. <laughs> so, Do you think there's a couch cushions team to go all the planes trying to find money down the back of all the, all the seats? I don't know. Like, I mean, no. You, <laughs> 16 you know, weeks. You know, weeks. Yeah. Well, but you know, like what, I mean, that's, <laughs> that basically tells you something about their situation, sure what right? Tell, what, I, don't, I don't know what's going to change in 12 weeks, though. If, if, I have, if they haven't got the money now, they're not going to have it in 12 weeks' time. Yeah, they're probably are getting like <laughs> these all these millions of people asking for money back. Oh, man. And, and here's an, you know, it's like it's it's a disaster, <laughs> right? I mean, if you think about it, here's an airline, which is it's oh. still going to have all those things, right? It's yeah. going to have accounts, it's going to yeah. have people, it's going to have people taking these calls to return money. Oh, it, it must be it must be a funny business being a travel travel provider of any description. Now you be you be handing out more money than you're taking in. So this never negative revenue business where it's you, neg- it's not no you're not, you're not losing money. You're not making a loss. You're literally you've probably got negative revenue, haven't you? You're giving oh, def- out more than you're taking in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, would we were, were, how much like you know flight center just reported what some eight yeah. nine hundred million dollar loss or something, yeah. right? I mean, what Brutal. do you do? Like, I mean, if you have no, no business, right? yeah, that's what you're gonna do. You're yeah. gonna report yeah. loss, right? So it's a, it's a strange old world. It's we're a strange in. world. Yeah. Let's move on to a question from another captain. Oh, from Captain Morgan. <laughs> I don't know if he's the man who gave his name to the rum, but uh, let's assume. Let's assume not. At least not in this case. Uh, <laughs> captain says, uh, "I have a question. If you'd like to use it on the podcast, we listen to every week." Thank you, Captain. I pulled my super. Being self-employed, there wasn't much there, and I reinvested it into my own portfolio as I thought it was better in my investments than my super fund. What are your thoughts on this? Doc, Captain's, Captain Morgan's taking his money out of his super. He's putting his own name and investing it there instead because he reckons he'll be better doing it that way than doing it through super. What do you reckon? Um, so I'm not 100% clear of what's going on here. So is it, is it basically like a self-managed super fund that he's talking My about? guess would be from the way he's written. I think, I think he's taking the opportunity for the early access super scheme the government's provided. Yeah. He's taking his money out of super and he's putting his own name and put it in the market. So instead of Captain Morgan's super fund, he's put it in Captain Morgan's personal name and he's investing in his own name rather than through the super structures. So uh, again, this is getting into like, um, this is getting into ter- territory that I don't want to get into. Like there's a lot of, <laughs> d- a lot of personal advice yes. type of thing. Yes. Uh, we, can't, we, can't yeah. tell, we can't tell rum sailors what they should do with their money is what you're saying. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, well, but I think I would say that, you know, you should talk to an accountant to figure out the tax implications. That was the number one thing that came to my mind is what are the tax implications or whatever you're doing. Um, there's a meaningful impact, I think, outside. Like, I mean, if outside super you're paying tax and if you're paying at the marginal yeah, rate yeah. versus inside super, that that is a big difference. Yeah. And yeah, you could like, I mean, you could be investing that money in a super fund as, you know, yeah. it's inside super, right? So I don't have a view other than just saying that. Yeah, uh, Captain, I have a little more of a view than Doc, or at least a little more. I think I have more opinions than Doc, let's be honest. Uh, I'm not shy in, in giving them either. I understand the urge i think it actually may cost you money in the long term let me explain the taxation of super is so stupidly good as in low as in (laughs) you know unsustainable from a policy perspective that most people should maximize their super contributions at a very minimum i have investments in and outside super so like you i'm not only in super for lots of different reasons uh, but the I, I would always have a lot of money in super given the choice because the taxation is, is just so incredibly concessionally taxed, so tax-advantaged. And if you're investing over 10, 20, 30, 40 years, 
the compound value of that tax, I want to say, Doc, it's probably something I'm going to speculate now as I try and think it desperately through as I talk, but it's probably worth two or three percentage points a year of additional gain just by the tax you're saving on those earnings and any capital gains you make. And if you think about that, that is a phenomenal advantage. You, you would go a very long way to find a professional investor who can reliably give you that sort of market out performance. And yet you could probably do it for yourself just by tax, um, you know, just using super because of the tax benefits. So that's a high bar, Captain, to try and clear. I think secondly, I get that you want to do it yourself rather than using a super fund. Now, I actually, this is, this is where it gets difficult because you're probably right. Uh, but probably because the super fund you've got or the strategy you're using, which are two different things, and I'll get to that in a second, are probably not optimal. And so there are there are other ways to solve the super problem rather than pulling the money out. Now, you already have, and again, this isn't personal advice, so um, I'll make this a general comment for anybody else listening, as well as you if it, if it applies to you, but you think about that for yourself. Um, if you are in a, f- a for-profit retail super fund charging high fees and putting you in a middling, you know, kind of balanced super fund, yeah, you can absolutely do a whole lot better outside super. Absolutely, because a balanced fund is designed to have lower volatility and with that almost always comes lower returns. And if you're paying a high fee for that low return, you're getting whacked both ways. So yes, I I would... I, I, ASIC doesn't let me say too much about promises and absolute stock, but let me say I reckon I have a 90% chance of outperforming a balanced super high fee super fund. Do you reckon that's reasonable? I think that's probably reasonable. Like the, the, the cost of the fees, if you just took that away, and then if you're able to average a better gain than a balanced fund by simply not being balanced, taking volatility instead of smooth returns that you're paying for, I, I'm, I'm almost certain I could, beat the, I could beat that return, right? Now, people like that because it's balanced. They like the volatility protection. So again, I'm not saying it's the wrong thing for everybody, just that if you said to me, you know, what's the best way of turning my million dollars into, well, my thousand dollars into a million dollars, I wouldn't say high fee, balanced super fund. <laughs> I would say low fee growth strategy in a super fund. Um, so, Captain, to that point, you could have and other people listening have a think about where your super is. Is it in the low? Is it in a low fee fund? If not, move it. Second, what strategy are you employing? If it's balanced, if it's conservative, move it to a higher growth strategy. As long as you have the time to retirement, as long as you're comfortable with volatility. So, those two things will help you improve your returns. I also think, despite my ninety percent. Guarantee, Doc. Um, the flip, the reverse is also true. I don't think I could outperform a because of the tax benefit. I don't think I could outperform outside super relative to inside super because of that tax benefit. You would have to do so much better if you could minimise your fees and maximise the investment returns inside super. That's almost going, almost certainly going to beat being outside super because of that tax. So that'd be my answer. I would have as much money inside super as I could. As long as it suits your lifestyle, as long as you don't want to retire at 45 because you can't then touch your super for another 15 years and that would suck. Um, but generally speaking, keep your fees down, keep your returns as high as you can by investing in the best strategy that offers the best potential returns rather than pulling money out of super. How did I go? I think you did fantastically well. Oh, that was long. All right, let's keep going. Good question from Chris. He says, uh, hey, Scott, Doc, I've just listened to your money hacks when you talked about super strategies. This time, my question is, if you want to invest in shares as part of your super, how would you do it? Individual shares or maybe ETFs? Could you please talk about, could you please both talk about your strategies? Great podcast. Thanks, Chris. So, Doc, investing in our own name is one thing, investing in super, a different thing, or is it? Would you invest in individual shares or would you use ETFs as part of your super strategy? 
Um, so I was not sure what he is like. I mean, does he want to know what I do? Um, yep. I can tell him what I do. Um, so I actually have no shares inside our super. Okay. Um, all my shares are actually outside of super. Inside super, we actually have some commercial property investment and some unlisted um, private investments. Interesting. Okay. Basically. Um, and that's partly because of your particular circumstances. Well, that's part, I, I, exactly. Let's not go into them, yeah. but it's not it's not necessary. Or maybe it is. So let me let me rather than answering it for you, let me ask the question. Is it because you think the returns are better there or is it because of the, the personal circumstances? Yeah, so it's mostly a, a, it's a couple of different things. One is, is personal circumstances. Uh, number two is just diversification. Of, you know, um, I've got enough shares outside. Mm. This is a way to own some asset class in a different form of uh, you know investment in another asset. Mm, mm. And... Um, also, it's a part circumstantial thing because you know if there's a regular income stream, then it is it's it's actually beneficial to, for that income to come into mm-hmm. super, right? And uh, it helps build your super over for time. For tax reasons, yeah, for tax reasons, right? right. Okay. So it, it's you know because you know again it's taxed a much lower rate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if if you've got income stream, for example, like if mm-hmm. you own a trust, like uh, like a property trust, for example, right? I mean that pays income, right? Because it pays out most of the stuff, right? right? So it's good to own that in uh, into so that's. But yeah, it is a lot of personal circumstances involved. Um, mm. If I was building, if I had an SMSF and I had shares inside it, I, you know, I would own individual shares because I'm mm. an individual shares kind of person. But mm. I can totally see the rationale for ETFs. I mean, if somebody wanted to keep it simple, you could, you know, basically have two or three different ETFs, maybe even three or four different ETFs, and be done. Um, and you could potentially get, you know, um, mm. good returns uh, over long periods of time. Um, using that strategy, so um, yeah, that's what I would say. I, I think I would do if you know, if in another version of the world. Nice, I like that, um, Chris. I, I have exactly the opposite. <laughs> My super fund is all all shares um, and a little bit of cash, just because that the cash kind of goes backwards and forwards between what's going on with dividends and contributions and stuff. But generally speaking, I'm all in shares. Um, the individual shares versus ETF question is a really interesting one, mate. It probably is a question more of risk and risk tolerance and kind of comfort than anything. Um, there's no, there's no, re- there's no, there's no fundamental reason why, if you're a decent investor, the, your personal and, and super portfolios need to be different in and of themselves. So, in Doc's circumstance, I'll put words in his mouth. He could happily have his super being half shares and half property, and his personal investment being half shares and half property, because effectively it's all Doc's assets. In, in one form or another. Um, now, in his case, there are re- different reasons for having different assets in different groups, but it's less about the kind of long-term investment strategy per se, per per kind of channel, um, than it is about the individual, uh, just the, the broad kind of total portfolio view. And I, I would I would argue for taking a total portfolio view rather than personal versus super. Uh, you know, the whole lot. So you're into, you know at retirement, you're going to have some personal assets and some super assets, and you own them both. You have control over both. Both will help you enjoy your retirement. The the structure matters in terms of tax benefits, as Doctor already talked about, but not necessarily kind of whether it's shares or individual ETFs. The, the kind of the asset selection or the particularly within an asset class, it's not really it doesn't necessarily need to be um, different by by different sort of structure, if you like. Now, some people do want it to be different though, and let me let me kind of kind of talk about the issue, and then before I give a, a, an answer, um, for some people they just like the fact that super is more. Uh, less volatile or 
in air quotes, safer or less risky or less involved. There's something about, well, super's for retirement, so at least I know that bit's safe. Uh, whereas my personal investing, I hope, I hope to take more risk because it feels different. And that's kind of rationally not, oh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, again, the total assets are the total assets, but it doesn't have to make rational sense, right? If it makes emotional sense for individual investors, then go for it. If you feel just so much better about the fact that you've got a, a super fund that is just a, a more you know, a lower risk, lower volatility, set and forget strategy, and that works for you, then knock yourself out, go for it. So I wouldn't say either is better or worse necessarily. It kind of comes down to personality and what you want to have in that in that particular fund, how you want to make that work. If you're someone who's nervous about investing, you don't like individual shares or you like them, but you don't feel super confident or comfortable when they move around a lot, you might just sleep better knowing that your super's in ETFs, which is just more diversified by definition. So by all means, do that. But I, but rationally, the, the question should be, how do I best divide up my investment portfolio in total, structure you know, kind of blind, do I want ETFs or individual shares and why? Once you've answered that, then there's no reason why you should have separate ones in, in super versus personal name for the sake of it. Now, for my circumstance, my super fund and my personal account are almost identical in terms of the assets I hold. Um, they are different by weighting just because of circumstance. I bought some shares of some companies in super and some in personal name at different times at different share prices. And so and I've added them at different times you know, what cash has been available. But I want to say, Doc, something like probably seventy-five or eighty percent of my holdings are actually the same across both 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 groups, because I just don't I don't feel the need personally to differentiate them. And so, if I like, I pick Kogan because I own Kogan shares. If I like Kogan, I want Kogan to be five percent of my portfolio in total. Then whether I have, you know, five percent in both both groups or you know ten in one and zero on the other or whatever it ends up being, um, just doesn't need to be doesn't need to be relevant. I don't I don't think about the individual shares in that way. It just isn't isn't relevant to me. I want to maximize my overall wealth in both platforms. I maximize my contributions to super because I want the tax benefit, but I invest effectively the same way in both. Any thoughts on that, mate? No, I think that sounds perfectly good to me. Do you think we've got time for another question? We're going to sneak one in, can't we? Oh, let's sneak in one last one. One last The lucky question. last. Last. It finishes with a nice hashtag. You'll like this one. Okay. So this is from Dave uh, on Instagram, which is exciting. You love Instagram, don't you? I hey, before it. I do that, let me share our socials because I didn't do that on Friday. And if I go without doing it for a week, I um, am breach of contract. No, not really. Um, I just like to mention it because we actually really like hearing from... I had a really good chat. So this is, again, we're recording this Thursday. I had a great chat with Brett last night about 11 o'clock. I'd finished my stint on, on Nine News and I got to just... He uh, was just talking about the super stuff. And it's a nice back and forth, five, six messages back and forwards at like 11 o'clock last night. Really nice guy, had a different perspective to me. We had a bit of a back and forth and it was a really constructive conversation. I learned something, hopefully he enjoyed it. So we love socials. We can't always promise to respond to every direct message or every every message, but in this case, it's just, it's just cool to be able to interact in a different way. So jump on the socials with us. The best place to get all of us is on the Twitters. Doc is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P., and The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Pretty straightforward. You can get us all there. Great place to do it. And if you liked, hear from Andrew Leggett last week, by the way. Don't forget, he's at Andrew Leggett. Two Gs and one T. There you go. Bit of a bit of a, a plug for you, Andrew. Thank you for joining us, mate. It was really fun, actually. Got some good good feedback, which means, of course, you'll never be on here again because Doc and I don't want the competition, basically. So bad luck. Last time we'll ever hear from Andrew. Um, so that's the Twitter account. If you want to get us on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia. Surprise, surprise. It does what it says on the tin or I'm Scott Phillips Money, or you can hit us up on Instagram at TMFScottP or at The Motley Fool AU. Just let me do my weekly check-in. Doc, are you on TikTok yet? No. I'm not on TikTok. Not yet? Not okay. yet. Soon? Coming? You're practicing, are you brushing up your dance moves? Um, no. 
No. You, uh, okay. I'm just going to stay away from TikTok. You say that. You say that. Talk I think you'll be Yeah. What about uh, Instagram? No, not yet. No, Instagram. Facebook? Facebook? Oh, I still have an account which I've not deleted. <laughs> So there's hope. There's hope. All right. So if you want to hit us up, please do hit us up on the, on the Twitters or on any of the other platforms if you want to hit touch base with myself or with the Motley Fools corporate account. Um, you can, of course, also email us if you want to, info at fool.com.au and our wonderful member services, Fools, make sure they get to us. Mate, here's Dave's question. Hi, Legends. That's nice. Had a quick question for the mailbag if I could. You certainly can. What services do you use to research the financials of the stocks you're interested in? I've been reading, up, I've been reading one up on Wall Street Thanks for the recommendation on this book, by the way. And he references historical PE ratios, 10-year financial summaries, earnings growth over the long term, etc. I use Comsec and I review the financial reports released by the companies, but find it difficult to collate all the information into a succinct format that gives the level of detail he refers to in the book. Is there something you use? He says, thank you both for the fantastic show and services. I tell everyone I know about The Motley Fool now. Hashtag long live The Motley Fool. I think we can get behind that hashtag, can't we? I love that hashtag. It's long awesome. live the motley fool. The fool is dead. Long live the fool. Hmm. All right, Doc, what can you help Dave with? What what resources are out there that he can use to gather some of the information he's found in One Up on Wall Street? Well, so here's one issue might be, so we, or at least we the fool, for example, um, we use um, S&P Capital IQ, we do. Um, which is a professional tool which provides you access to basically all historical financial information. Um, still sometimes cross-check with uh, the relevant, yep. um, you know, the original source because there's always a possibility that the data is not 100% accurate mm-hmm. or, you know, some taxing... Trust but verify, as they yeah, say. Yeah, taxing information, you know, because the, you know, a lot of funny things happen with stuff like EBITDA and stuff like that. So especially with assumed tax rates and so on. So, so that doesn't really help him. Here's what I would suggest, like... First of all, I think if you just look at, start with one annual report, mm. right? And that annual report already has information about this year and the prior year. I mean, some companies actually give you three years information. Maybe some might even give you five years of information. Look at that. Look at the presentations. Um, that gives you enough data points mm. to start with, right? And if you want to then look further back, you, you know, the best thing to do is to basically pull out the five annual reports or whatever you yeah. want to do with that um i think there's no i don't know of any good tool um out there that you could use to just pull data that's essentially free um you can pull some data out from yahoo finance for yeah, example that's pretty good, um so that's one place to look at mm-hmm. but Personally, I don't look at historical PEs because the reason I don't look at historical PEs is that's a very nice, that's, in my mind, that's a nice way to wrap yourself around what I'd call almost irrelevant information. Mm. To like, why was the PEX in the past? Well, it depends on a bunch of different things, right? It right. depends on how quickly the E was increasing. It depends actually a lot on what the interest rates were. It depends on a lot yep. of other you know, macroeconomic factors that come into play. And it, totally frankly, right. yeah. and frankly, <laughs> the PE could be meaningless because the market might be overpricing, underpricing mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't really pay a lot of attention to mm-hmm. what the historical metrics are. Uh, what I'm more interested in seeing is what the future looks like. So historical data is good to have, yeah, but not necessarily necessary. I, I think I'll make okay. I'll make a quick point here. One of the things though that you can see um, based on historical data is 
what's the propensity of the company to raise capital? What's the propensity of the company to dilute shareholders? What's the propensity of the company to destroy its balance sheet? Uh, you know, all sort of, you know, you can get some historical sense of how management has been deploying capital. I think that's important because if a company is highly dilutive, uh, in terms of, you know, then you're not actually going to make much money because it's just going to dilute away everything. Yeah. Um, so, those are sort of the, there are you know a few things that are very high level you could quickly look at and you know go yes or no um, and be happy with right mm-hmm. and then rest really what you want to do is a qualitative analysis of how the company is going to do in the future. Yeah, I think that's right. I um, so I c- couldn't couldn't agree with any of that, Doc. Um, in terms of the question, Mister Dave, uh, Comsec's actually really good. I have to say. So, yeah, we, we're very very fortunate. We get it. We get access to a professional grade tool, and we're happy to use that. And hopefully, it adds value for our members and listeners. Um, it, it does cost money for other people to to obviously sign up for. For most investors, they shouldn't do it. Just not not necessary. Not probably got the you know it's not going to move the dial enough to make the make it really worthwhile. Um, for uh, in fact, you can probably join one of our services for, for cheaper than that, by the way, and get get the advantage of us already going through that information for you. Here's a quick ad. Um, but Dave, Comsec's actually really good. They've got 10 years of financial history. You can do a, some some elementary screening, which is actually reasonable. It's a little bit finicky to kind of work with. You've got to download some data and stuff. and It's, it's a little bit painful, but for free if you're a Comsec member. Other brokerages may have it as well, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm a Comsec customer. Uh, I don't have any other commercial relationship with them, by the way. So um, I, I'm not I'm not giving them a wrap for the sake of it, just literally because it seems to make sense. And before I joined the film, I used Comsec stuff and, and as Doc says, the, the original source data. Um, I would continue to do that if I wasn't at the fool. I think it's completely fine. I don't use historical P's either. It's one thing I don't agree with Lynch on. It, I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a yeah. There's there's possibly some if you know enough about the business and there's reason to believe that it tends to trade around certain ranges and it is cheap by historical standards. I guess you could make a case if you had like a I don't know, doc, like a Telstra or something, right? Historically, if you'd already if you'd always bought it when it was super cheap and sold it when it, when it was relatively expensive, I guess if you had an investment strategy that did that, you might be able to make some money. It's not what I do. It's not what you do. It's not what we do at the full. But I can kind of imagine why, you know, if it's, if it's historically cheap and nothing's changed, it's not a particularly volatile business. I, I guess you can make an argument that the market, you know, the old Buffett greedy when others are fearful. I guess that might imply fear. That might imply you should be greedy. And conversely, when the when the PE is at the top of its historical range, again, if nothing super's changed, you might you might imply something. But yeah, as Doc said, the interest rates are all over the place and too hard. Uh, Ten-year financial summaries, though, earnings growth you absolutely can get from Comsec. So, but I would honestly start there. I think it's a very good place to do it. Um, not perfect, and as I said, not something that you can um, get as much as you can from S and P or Bloomberg or something else. But um, but completely credible. And again, if I if I stop working here tomorrow, I'd happily go back to Comsec, and I think I'd be you know mostly as good as an investor because I don't you know the extra stuff is is nice to have, easy to have. Certainly, I'm sure it improves the, our investing results, but I feel more than comfortable using some of the free stuff that's out there, including, as Doc said, from Yahoo Finance. Anything else, Doc? I have nothing to add. I reckon we should come back on Tuesday with some money hacks. What do you think? I think we should. In the meantime, go and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Metaphorically speaking, we're on Thursday, but you know, it's... it's we'll enjoy the Sunday. It's, well, it's, it's cooler if we pretend what's, you know, we're it's awesome. in the studio yeah. doing our thing. And hopefully, the weather's good for everybody. Hopefully... Everyone's staying safe from from COVID. We haven't talked about COVID much this week, which is fantastic. I, you know, it's, it's there, it's real, and we don't we don't want to you know make too light of it. But GS and I talk about actual business stuff and other things without mentioning coronavirus too frequently. So, but do stay safe. Please enjoy your weekend, and we look forward to joining you on Tuesday with some money hacks. Before we go, though, 
Don't forget, you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And as always, if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, leave us some stars, tell your friends. Again, only chalk, only skywriting, nothing permanent. We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. And so cheap. Don't forget, you can also get a dose of foolish straight to your inbox as well as an offer to join Motley Fool Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money special, regular mailbag edition. We'll be back on Tuesday with a dose of money hacks. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.